Empirical experiments are clearly key to science. You think of a hypothesis, you test it, you learn something about the world. But spare a thought for thought experiments. Our guest this week is Harold Filcher. He's a philosopher at the University of Linköping in Sweden, and thought experiments are the starting point of our discussion. We talk about what thought experiments are and what they give us. Do they lead us to new knowledge about the world, or are some thought experiments more geared towards providing us with understanding of the physical theories that we've already developed. That's something that we discuss in a bit more detail. And we talk also about how understanding seems to have been a little bit neglected in the analytic tradition of philosophy, um, in contrast to the uh, continental tradition. The analytic tradition seems to concern itself more with the problem of knowledge. What is knowledge and justification? So Harold provides a really nice perspective on on, on how to think about understanding itself, what understanding is. We end up having a pretty wide-ranging conversation talking about where thought experiments have gone wrong, how we can think of science fiction as a thought experiment. Um, we talk about the mathematization of, of, of science under Galileo or with Galileo in the 16th century. And we talk about um, the value of transcendental arguments. So there's a lot going on here, and if, if I'm forced to give it a single theme. It's something like this. There's a lot more to the scientific method than induction. In fact, I'm not really sure there's a scientific method at all. There's a lot of different tools going on. And here we talk about some of the other ones that are worth paying attention to. And I think it's really interesting to get the perspective of someone like Harold who bridges the um, continental and the or phenomenological and the analytic traditions. So I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot of things. Uh, I hope you do too. I'm James Robinson. This is Multiverses. Harold Vilcher, welcome to Multiverses. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Brilliant. So I I want us to start by talking about thought experiments. Uh, I came across a, a paper of yours from a couple of years ago uh, where what was quite interesting to me is I, I've often thought about thought experiments within philosophy, but you kind of introduced how thought experiments are um, used in, in science fiction or, or how one can think of science fiction as performing a similar function. Um, but perhaps you could get, get us started just by giving your take on what thought experiments are. What, what is it they, they, they do for us? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for the question. I mean, actually, looking back uh, at my career, thought experiments were quite important because it was actually my first international postdoc at the University of Toronto, where I had the pleasure to work with uh, Jim Brown, who's one of the, you know, very notorious people advocating a very very strong Platonist take on thought experiments, where basically thought experiments really allow you to directly inspect uh, the laws of nature. And he has this uh, story about how Galileo really saw, you know, the uh, law of falling bodies by pulling off his tower thought experiments and these kinds of things. And so I was a postdoc at the uh, University of Toronto, and there were quite a, quite a lot of people working on thought experiments. And I guess how I personally got interested in these, uh, you know, wild creatures in, 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 in scientific methodology was, you know, you usually hear this uh, standard story about how science is 
based on, on experiments and observation and experiment and these kinds of things. But then all of a sudden, you open up um, certain science textbooks, certain physics textbooks, and I don't know, the way how people learn special relativity, for instance. I mean, you know, the first steps are thought experiments. It's kind of, and it makes you wonder. So why, why, why do we need them? What, what, what do they actually do? And coming back to this uh, paper of mine, you're referring to after I kind of made my way into the discussion about thought experiments, at some point I was I was actually quite surprised that most people discussed thought experiments really with a view on a question about knowledge. So basically mm -hmm. for many people, the argument basically runs, science is about producing knowledge about the world. In the vast majority of cases, this is being done through experiments, observation, and these more conventional uh, uh, methods. But then you also find uh, thought experiments. They are part of established scientific methodology, so we should accept that they are there because scientists are using them. But then how are they contributing to the production of knowledge with the assumption that science is about producing knowledge and exclusively so? And then you have different views on that. You have someone like John Norton who basically says, well, you know what? Thought experiments just look so fantastic and mysterious. In reality, it's just arguments because that's, of course, the other way how you can, from certain premises, come to certain conclusions, but there isn't anything mysterious about it. We know how logic works. And this would be one of the uh, explanations. And then you have someone like Jim Brown who says, no, 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 you really underestimating uh, how mysterious these things really are. And, you know, Jim Brown is a Platonist in mathematics, so he really carries so this general idea of Platonism that there are abstract entities out mm -hmm. there. They really do exist, not in physical space and time, but they are really out there. And then he connects that really to scientific methodology by saying, well, there is uh, the third eye of intuition and thought experiments Mm -hmm. allow you to directly inspect the laws of nature, building on a certain idea, this Tretzky truly account of what the laws of nature are, but he really adds this epistemic bit that you really can inspect them. No one believes that except Jim himself. I really <laughs> admire his, his uh, ability to, to defend this position over, I don't know, 30 years or so. I, I wonder if there's people like maybe Tegmark or something who have this very plain might kind of follow in that tradition. So maybe his influence has gone sort of outside of philosophy in ways that are, you know, a little bit hard to trace. I mean, you're right. I mean, there are mathematical monists, but I would say in the case of Techmark, the argument would be a very different one. I mean, it's mm. it's, it's basically an adaptive, abductive argument in the face of the uh, unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. And then basically just saying, well, maybe our theories are mathematics approximating mathematics and then there is really no 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 mm -hmm. mystery there but i'm not sure if techmark ever talks about thought experiments i haven't mm -hmm. seen him because my impression would be that i haven't met a lot of scientists actually who to, who take thought experiments very seriously especially not in discussions about uh, knowledge production and I think to a certain mm -hmm. extent, this is also what uh, happened in my own thinking about thought experiments. At some point, it was really like, okay, so you have a bunch of philosophers discussing if thought experiments 
are part of this uh, enterprise of generating knowledge. And then you have people saying yes and people saying no. But actually, is it really about knowledge? Isn't isn't mm-hmm. what thought experiments do something else entirely? Uh, and isn't that also epistemically interesting? Because to kind of make a long story short, the idea in this um, uh, The Forever War paper was that what thought experiments do mostly is uh, generating understanding. So they help uh, cognizing subjects to understand what's happening uh, uh, with regard to a certain theory, how we are supposed to make sense of certain empirical situations. And this is really where thought experiments uh, are, are, are very useful. And the thing is, there is a tradition, and I really think it goes back uh, to logical empiricism, basically, where understanding isn't taken seriously at all as far Mm. as epistemic concerns are relevant. So people would just say, yeah, understanding is nice. You know, it's this psychological feeling of all of a sudden having this eureka moment. You know, aha, now I understand. But that's just psychology. This is just, you know, neurons firing in this or that way. But it has nothing to do whatsoever with uh, what philosophy should be concerned about, namely justification, logic, Mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So you have a very strict separation between, um, on the one hand, knowing how the world looks like and then you know the bits and pieces of 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 logic and 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 justification or maybe probability theory you need to figure these things out but understanding is just it's just a feeling it's just psychology Mm. and i i think i grew increasingly skeptical when it comes to this viewpoint in general not only with regard to uh, thought experiments but more generally really also thinking about science and of course, mm-hmm. then there is a question to be asked, what is the relation between knowledge and understanding? Uh, are they completely disconnected or is there a connection there? So can you really understand something without thereby also having knowledge about the target system? And all of these, these details, of course, need to be figured out. But I do think understanding is an important epistemic uh, virtue when we're talking about talking about uh, science in general. And in this thought experiments paper, I wanted to, first of all, get a little bit clearer on what I think understanding is, and second of all, how it plays a role both in thought experiments and, and this is the other part, in uh, science fiction literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, the some really interesting things to, to go over here. I mean, firstly, I think, as you say, there's been a lot of discussion of the groundbreaking thought experiments which kind of lead us to new paradigms, I guess. So Galileo and his boat, there's Galilean relativity, Einstein thinking about elevators falling, and there's general relativity. You know, clearly those are really important moves that one can argue are knowledge producing, although perhaps, you know, it's not a complete laboratory of the mind. It's more an argument which is you know drawing on principles that are grounded in lots of observations however it's also the case that probably most of the thought experiments that one encounters are in textbooks and in lectures and they're just about you know i think as you say passing on an understanding of the theory and and giving people that ability to actually manipulate their knowledge i guess 
Um, and I think I agree as well that, to my mind, understanding does seem under-addressed in certain areas of philosophy. And the the quote that comes to mind is, uh, I think it's Simon Critchley who said something like, um, you know, one of the ways of characterizing the split between analytic and continental philosophy, very, very difficult thing to do, <laughs> is to is that analytic philosophy is more focused on knowledge and continental more on wisdom, I guess. And wisdom kind of links into that understanding part. And we should say here for people who, who are less familiar with your work that you somewhat straddle those worlds, but you, you, you're a phenomenologist, so you're kind of within the, the continental tradition, I guess, much as one doesn't really like that terminology. It's sort of the best we have. Of. So, yeah, I, I feel like, let, let's talk about this some more. So what is it? I mean, can we characterize what it is, understanding, and how it differs from knowledge? Big question. Yeah, I would say that understanding, and this is, by the way, also how I would think about a lot of what phenomenology brings to the table. So sometimes people ask me, so, you know, when they see that some of my work, um, as you mentioned, is partly, you know, in this uh, uh, tradition called phenomenology, and then they're reading a couple of things, and then usually, especially people in uh, analytic fields would be, for instance, more familiar with, for instance, pragmatism and William James, and they would ask, mm -hmm. oh, some of that stuff sounds like, you know, William James. And I would say, yeah. Or, I mean, honestly, I, I don't think that the differences between uh, someone like Edmund Husserl and William James, I mean, of course, there are, there are differences mm -hmm. in detail, but I think what these two traditions kind of share is a very practical approach, like also how I would spell out understanding. Basically, for me, it would be the ability to display the right kinds of operations or actions given the kind of target system you're uh, concerned with. To give you a concrete example, mm -hmm. like I would say that my car mechanic clearly understands how an engine works. How do I know? Well, whenever I go with my old motorbike and uh, uh, say, look, it's again not working, something's wrong and I can't do it, he clearly knows what to do. And he clearly displays the right kinds of uh, 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 operations in order to fix uh, the engine. So that makes me very confident that uh, my car mechanic actually understands the engine. He understands mm -hmm. the part, he knows how to rearrange them. He knows uh, what to do in order to fix it. Now, I would say displaying or the ability to display the right kinds of actions given the situation you're or the target system you're concerned with uh, is the first step for what you need in order to say that I do understand something. And by the way, it doesn't have to be, if I'm talking about operations or actions, it doesn't always have to be your hands moving, tools using for this or that. It could be a mental operation. Like, how do we know that someone understands arithmetic? Well, because the person knows how to manipulate the equation in the right kinds of way and move the symbols back and forth. And this is exactly how we would say we can determine if someone understands or doesn't. But then there is, I think, a second component because I think that's quite important. And going back to my example of the car mechanic, 
I would say my car mechanic understands the engine because he uh, or she can uh, use the right kinds of tools in order to 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 fix the engine. Now, someone could say, "Well, Harold, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound very convincing." Because assume I just simply take the tools of your car mechanics. I, I steal all the tools, then he can't or she can't fix the engine anymore. Does that mean she just or he just lost the ability to understand the engine because? Mm. He or she doesn't have the tools anymore. And I would say, no, of course not, because my car mechanic could still kind of do the right kinds of operations offline, so to speak. And this is the second part of what I need, uh, what I would say is necessary in order for you to have understanding. You need to be in a position to build a mental representation of the target system you're interested in. And then the operations could even be done offline. And I think you could even turn this into some kind of test. For instance, you know, as academics, we're sometimes concerned with the not very pleasant uh, enterprise of figuring out whether students really understood something or mm -hmm. are just you know, faking understanding and have just learned certain operations. Like you give someone, you know, an equation to solve. And then the question is, well, did the student really understand or have they just memorized the right kinds of steps? Mm -hmm. I mean, you... By changing the target system slightly or by making the student create their own mental representation of just a similar problem and then displaying certain operations is a pretty uh, good way to figure out if someone has really understood something. I mean, a problem I recently started to think about is how ChatGPT would actually do based yeah. on that uh, understanding of understanding whether I'm actually forced to say that ChatGPT does understand which I'm not sure I would be very happy with, but yeah, I haven't done my thinking, so please don't grill me on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm tempted to chat test chat the GPT on some of these thought experiments myself. So, so then understanding is sort of the ability to deploy knowledge to do things backed up by mental models. So, so what is it about thought experiments that are so useful for producing this? Why can't we just give someone, for example, the Lorentz transformation, right? Or the equations of special relativity or the, the equations of general relativity and say, hey, here's like some, you know, tell me how much this rod is going to uh, contract if I, you know, zoom it off in a rocket or something. Or yeah. why, why do we still... Why, why do we give students the these 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 thought experiments and not just the equations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think to a certain extent, it's 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 also a um, in a way very personal question for me on on several different levels. Because for one thing, I think if you were to ask me what the deepest riddle about science is in my oral thinking about, you know, uh, trying to understand what science is from a philosophical point of view. In that regard, I would consider myself to be a very uh, traditionally minded uh, philosopher. Then I would say what puzzles me about science is really the connection between reality, whatever reality turns out to be in the end, uh, and mathematics. So what is it about this link between these two things? So why all of a sudden, and uh, I have to say at my previous institution, I had this double affiliation 
at the philosophy department and the history of science center. So I also did some history of science teaching and research, and especially on uh, early mechanics and kinematics in the 17th century. And what's so interesting mm. about it, I mean, someone like uh, Leo, and I know the historical story in all its glorious detail is a little bit more complicated but that, uh, uh, than that. But, uh, you know, you have someone like uh, Leo suggesting a completely new way to do science. I mean, of course, people used mathematics to describe uh, 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 phenomena in nature before that as well. But Galileo was the first one to say, well, we're not supposed to only do it up in the skies. We need to do it everywhere with regard to everything. And if you don't do it, you will not be able to read a, a, a God's second book, which is just reality around you with coming back to Tecma, which is mathematical in nature. Hmm. But you have this move and all of a sudden, science starts to fire on all cylinders. And then wherever you look, people learn how to apply mathematics to describe uh, reality. Science uh, starts to take off, first in physics, then in other areas. Curiously, in certain disciplines, it doesn't seem to work with that high of a degree of efficiency. But in general, I think there is something about this link, which is... Yeah, I put a, a, a boost for whatever uh, science is up to. And, and I think this is a deep philosophical problem. Now, how is this related to thought experiments? Well, there is one curious thing about mathematics. You sometimes see an equation and you might even have the mathematical skills to be competent with manipulating the equation itself. You know how to move the symbols around. You, you know what you can do in this mathematical space. But you might not have the slightest idea what the symbols actually are supposed to refer to. Is this economics? Mm -hmm. Is this population biology is uh, am i looking at lotka volterra equations describing you know fish in the pond and fishermen uh, trying to catch those fish or is it is it is it is it quantum mechanics is it sometimes it, there might be a situation where you can deal with the math without knowing what the math is supposed to refer to and i think also in didactics, when you learn physics, I mean, look at how physics textbooks or university curricula are built. I mean, first of all, you try to get a certain amount of uh, mathematics under your belt, just mm. mathematics per se. And then basically uh, you start dealing with the physics. But I think one of the crucial problems, which is also the reason why every physics student uh, always starts with the same, you know, uh, little toy examples where, you know, you have trucks uh, sliding down uh, 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 hills and then you say, yeah, and you can assume there is no uh, frictional effect, yada, yada, yada. Why everyone is doing the same is I think this is exactly the stage of learning physics where you start the very challenging task to create coordinations between the empty formalism of mathematics mm. and the kind of target system this piece of mathematics is supposed to be about. Mm. And this is also where thought experiments are really good. And look, for instance, at uh, some of Einstein's thought experiments. I mean, basically, you know, this train experiment, for instance, where he has basically one train going on a train track. And then the whole thing about the thought experiment is to uh, one time you're an observer at the side of the train track and you have two light flashes and you see where the light flashes are meeting. And the second time you're an observer on the train, moving along with the train. The only thing here is you 
to get used to using certain a certain terminology to talk about events and the temporal order of events in a way that at the beginning is very counterintuitive. So what does counterintuitive mean? Well, it's just counterintuitive in relation to the way we normally speak. Special relativity requires you to talk very differently about events and temporal order and all these kinds of things. And the thought experiment really helps you, on the one hand, to take certain notions which are weird, or in some cases, mathematical formalism, which is per se empty, semantically not specified. And then the thought yeah. experiment allows you to uh, start this kind of mapping. And I think a lot of this has to do with being able to pull off the right kinds of mental operations to build concrete scenarios in your mind mm -hmm. that connect the mathematics with the target system you actually want to talk about. Yeah, I think I think the, the the train one is is a great example because it's a thought experiment that anyone can understand whether they have any knowledge of physics or not. You just need to accept that light always travels at the same speed. So there's yeah. this person in the middle of, of, of a train. He sort of, um, I don't know, lights up a light bulb and that light travels out at a finite speed, um, hits one end of the carriage and the other end of the carriage at the same time, according to that guy in the middle of the train. <laughs> but then if you watch it from the edge of the, you know, bus beside the same, the train tracks, well, because the train's moving, the light has, uh, has to take a longer path know in one direction sort of traveling backwards than that than in the other and so you don't see it as being simultaneous and it just completely breaks down this very like you say introduces this very counterintuitive idea that simultaneity is relative and it makes that concrete in a way that it's it's very hard to get from the the equations i i think one example another one uh talking of einstein that i find really interesting here is the sticky bead thought experiment. So to kind of summarize this, well, Einstein, after general relativity, sort of first predicted that there would be gravitational waves. And then he flip-flopped on this um, because Eddington said, oh, no, this is just like these gravitational waves that you're talking about. Uh, they're just a kind of ripple in the coordinate system. And, and Einstein bought that he was like oh yeah no they're they're not interesting they're not real you know, decades later uh, Feynman came along and said hey let's say you know there was still a debate going on about this and Feynman said look what happens if you have some beads on a on a rod right and and there's a gravitational wave that comes along and these beads are kind of sticky do the beads have any feel any friction do they start moving and, and transfer some energy to the rod because if they do then you know there's clearly something going on here that's not just a coordinate shift and people thought about this and they're like oh yeah right this is this is true i mean even you know expert physicists einstein himself it can be hard for them to figure out like to apply the knowledge of their own you know put their put their equations into ac action and, and see where they touch reality uh, that's just kind of stunning to me that 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 happened, right? And it makes one wonder what else are we missing? Are there, you know, other places we're misapplying theories? No, completely, I agree. And and with regard to Einstein, uh, I mean, and of course, one always has to be quite cautious with this kind of uh, speculative reasoning. But I wondered a couple of times whether there is also a relation between, you know, when people say that uh, uh, Einstein had this, uh, you know, really. Uh, 
excellent physical intuition on the one hand, but when it came to mathematics, uh, actually, you know, reached out for help from some of his more mm. mathematically gifted colleagues, uh, Hermann Weil and, and, and others, whether there is a connection that you find so many wonderful thought experiments in, 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 in Einstein's thinking, if there is a correlation to, 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 you know, his maybe not perfect mastery of the mathematical details that, you know, the thought experiments almost were a little bit the substitute for perhaps, for yeah. perhaps what, what he lacked uh, with regard to, to, to mathematical uh, specialization. Yeah. But yeah, of that's course, really speculative. Yeah, and we, we don't want to say that he was bad at mathematics. <laughs> he was clearly very, very gifted. But but I think you're right. I mean, and he turned to Nertha. I mean, no one knew how to figure out some of the – how to do the differential uh, geometry that he needed for general relativity. So, you know, Nertha and Vaughan and others sort of helped with that. But um, I, I think it's also one of the things that is sometimes suggested about the EPR paper where he argues that, quantum mechanics is incomplete that he wasn't it was kind of overly mathematicized and he lost his way a little bit and and mm. you know, later the conclusions of that paper were found to be incorrect basically i mean they're still debating around around this but certainly like yeah it, it does feel like he he drew he was playing to his strengths when he was grounding himself with with thought experiments yes no absolutely and i think this is an important one i mean the epr is, is also a very clear example of uh no matter what you think about a thought experiment at, at a given time i mean basically with one respect it's just like every other part of uh, scientific methodology it's highly fallible and you might have thought experiments which at one point in time really seem to suggest one outcome very very mm. clearly and historically also uh, think of for instance newton's uh, bucket experiment that convinced a lot of people at the time of a very specific view about the nature of absolute space for instance and then you read yeah. ernst mach basically turning yeah. the whole thought experiment around. And all of a sudden you think, oh, yeah, well, yeah, sure. Uh, well, why didn't I have thought about that? So, I mean, no matter how yeah, where maybe, you stand. Um, uh, sorry, I just, uh, I mean, I love the bucket experiment. We've actually discussed it already with with, with Julian Barber, but um, even for people who've already heard that discussion, I think it's worth just going over what that experiment is because it's just an absolute classic. And you're right, it sort of shows that you can... The danger of thought experiments is 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 you can get it wrong, right? You you, you don't actually run the experiments because they're so abstract. Um, so maybe if you just outline how the bucket experiment works and what what Leibniz and Newton thought, and 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 then what Mark Mark said. Well, I mean, basically, you have the situation where you have by stipulation an empty universe, and then you have a bucket dangling down a rope and the first thing here is never ask where the rope is actually tied to in an empty universe <laughs> yeah. I think that, that should you give you a moment to pause and think but then basically you throw the bucket around and you let it go and then you uh, perceive the surface of the water in the bucket and you see it going through different stage, stages and at one point it's it's concave and at one point it's flat and and also a huge part of it is, of course, the relation between the surface uh, of the water in relation to uh, uh, the walls of the bucket. And then basically, the question Newton asks, I mean, in an empty universe, 
you have a non-correlation between the rotational motion of the bucket and uh, the surface of the water. So whatever the surface of the water is relative to cannot only be the walls of the bucket. So what yeah. else could it be in an empty universe? So the only thing left yeah. basically is absolute space. Hence, there is a, a situation imaginable where you have a system that causally reacts to only one thing left, namely being absolute space. That is basically because, uh, the line of reasoning. Yeah, and, and just just to make it crystal clear, it's because at the you know before the bucket starts spinning, the water is flat, and it's not you know the water is not moving relative to the bucket, so there's nothing going on there. After it starts, you know, after you start spinning it, water initially is maybe rotating a bit relative to the bucket, but it reaches a steady state where it's it's not rotating relative to the, the sides of the bucket, but the shape of the surface has changed. It's now, uh, you know, it's now curved. So how, how would you explain that? Like, what is it moving relative to? And as you say, the answer for, you know, back then was, well, it's 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 moving relative to absolute space because we've, we've taken everything else out of this universe. So what, what, what else could it be? So yeah, so then yeah, what was Max' uh, response to this when he heard it? Yeah, I mean, and, and this later. is an interesting one, and maybe this already also leads us over to uh, uh, well, one of my favorite topics, namely phenomenology, because the way I read the last I don't know 150 years of history of philosophy, uh, the phenological movement actually starts with Ernst Mach. I would really uh, consider him to be uh, the, the the first proto uh, phenomenologist. So. What does that mean before I come back to the thought experiment? Well, I think Mach took the idea that science starts and ends with experience and that we should take experience very, very seriously and that we should also always be quite cautious how we think about the scope of our uh, uh, inferential machinery. He took that very seriously. And I think this is really something that carried over uh, into uh, phenomenology, that you have this very, very strong respect for the phenomena. And I mean, basically coming back to the to the uh, uh, bucket thought experiment, I mean, basically what Mach is, I mean, if you read it closely, uh, his analysis of these thought experiments, I think it's a, a dual strategy. So first of all, it's really saying, look, if you hyper-idealize a situation in thought in a way Newton does, it becomes completely unreliable. I mean, you can basically, you can basically dream up any kind of uh, uh, scenario and then deduce any kind of uh, 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 conclusion, whatever you want from such a situation. So this is simply not what we're supposed to do in science. And second of all, there are alternative uh, explanations. So if you don't make this hyper-idealizing move of simply abstracting everything away from, from the universe, then, I mean, of course, there are the fixed stars left. And, I mean, that is your frame of reference to which you can actually ex explain what's, what's, what's happening with the bucket. But the thing about, uh, and I hope it's okay if I drag the discussion now a little bit in that direction. I, oh, I please think, see. Yeah, I think uh, I see where you're I going. I think this general idea in Mach that there is a certain danger of having certain well-proofed inferential methods, and then we carry them over in, in, in new areas of, of, of inquiry. And we kind of 
lose track a little bit of the kinds of conclusions we take from these inferential machinery and assume certain things where actually we're moving away from experience too far and we're not truthful to the phenomena anymore. I think this is really uh, um, a general topic that uh, is very strong in Mach, but really also carried over to Husserl. And interestingly, Edmund Husserl, and I'm not sure how familiar people, especially in analytic circles, are with that name. I mean, he's usually referred to as the founder of the phenomenological movement. And then, you know, the story usually goes, well, in phenomenology then was the starting point for what later became the continental tradition. And as we all know, continental philosophers are not interested in science and they're <laughs> generally uh, terminologically not very precise and we never quite know what they're saying and, you know, these kinds of things. But I think Husserl is historically a very interesting character because, I mean, on the one hand, there's so many stories to tell. Bertrand Russell had one book uh, in prison during, uh, with him in prison during uh, uh, World War One, and that was Husserl's Logical Investigations. Uh, um, you know, uh, so there were strong connections between what Husserl did and how he was perceived. Also, of course, between Frege. Frege yeah. wrote a uh, referee report on Husserl's first book on, mathemat on mathematics and basically accused him of being a psychologist, which uh, Husserl took very seriously and was really the starting point for uh, his criticism of psychologism later in, uh, in logical investigation. So there are close historical connections and also with Mach. 1923, Husserl gives a lecture in, in, in Amsterdam and basically says at the very beginning, look, the term phenomenology comes from Mach's usage of the notion phenological physics. And as you might know, physicists to this very day still talk about phenological laws, for instance. What is a phenological law? It's, for instance, Snell's law. Uh, it just gives you a mathematical description of the angles of a wave going through isotropic media. Like, you know, a light ray goes uh, through air and then through water, and then you have a change in the angle. And Snell's law just describes this correlation. But what Snell's law does not do is to give you a kind of a deep explanation. It doesn't give you a view of what's happening under the hood of this correlation between the angles of, 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 of the light ray. And this is what we mean with phenological law. And to make a very complicated and philosophically invested story short, Mach's idea was that physics should be as phenological as possible in that sense. But Husserl took also the inspiration for calling this whole project phenomenology phenomenology from Mach. This is also something he says in the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica article when he writes about uh, 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 so Husserl himself writing about phenomenology and saying, well, Mach is the source where I took the main inspiration and I think of my project as a philosophical radicalization. And I'm mentioning this I know this is not a history of philosophy uh, podcast, but I'm mentioning this to show also people sometimes really like to think in these, you know, clear categories. Here is analytic and, and, and you know, and that's Quine and that's uh, Sellers and Putnam and these guys. Well, the late Putnam might already be tricky. And then you have continental philosophers and there you have, I don't know, Recur and Derrida and Shishek and, and whatever. And it's, it's clearly demarcated. Uh, I mean, historically, Situation, first of all, is much more complicated. And I think also if you look at the actual work that's being done, the situation is, isn't so, so simple either. And Mach and Husserl, this connection, for instance, is a very interesting one historically. Yeah, that, I, I was not aware of that. that that's com 
completely fascinating. And, and by the way, this is like an anything interesting goes sort of podcast. So <laughs> the history of the philosophy of science is certainly uh, fair game as a, as a hunting ground. Yeah. Wow. So phenomenology took its, you know, took its 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 title <laughs> from Mark. Yeah, and I completely agree as well. That I mean, I, there's a lot more intersections between the continental and analytic traditions than one is perhaps led to believe. Just studying uniquely in one of those traditions. And if I might comment on on your papers, the sort of stereotypical view from analytic philosophy is, oh my goodness, these continental philosophers are just impossible to read, right? It's just like, but that, that's I agree. Not, yeah, that, and that's not at all the case. I mean, I think, you know, I, I would uh, invite um, listeners to go on your on your website, um, just Harold uh, Vilcher. If they type that in, they'll 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 find you, and uh, you have your papers there, and they're very very easy to understand and uh, entertaining, I might say. So I don't know what my next question is, but uh, I do I do find this is like this is something that is perhaps I mean maybe yeah, maybe I can chime in with 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 I mean honestly and this is like why I don't know we're at minute 38 so I think 30 minutes ago I I I mentioned that one of your questions had a kind of a also kind of an autobiographical touch for me and I think one thing I thought about 30 minutes ago now comes up again because I, I, I should mention when we're starting talking about the relation between analytic and, and continental and how phenomenology I think could be of use also in philosophy of science, in mainstream philosophy of science uh, these days. I mean, personally for me, I studied uh, as an undergraduate student, I would say at a violently analytic department. I mean, I, I think the first three mandatory courses we, we had were all formal logic, and, and it was really that kind of education I originally had. But then, especially thinking about science, I remember an eye-opener for me was reading uh, Ernst Cassira on relativity theory, and especially his take on what covariance is and this idea that you could apply a certain transcendental thinking on scientific theories and that you could uh, try to make sense of what scientific theories and models do from a standpoint that does not automatically assume that what a mathematical model is is just a representational vehicle of some empirical target system and then basically the only question you have to oh the only question but one of the questions you have to solve is what is the relation between the mathematical model with regard to the target system? Are we talking about similarity, isomorphism, partial isomorphism? What exactly is going on there? I think what you can take from some of the continental approaches out there, uh, and this could be neo-Kantianism, this could be phenomenology, this could be a, a couple of others, is I think this attempt to maybe question this basic assumption that uh, when we think about science, we always think about mathematical models, or mo most of the time we think about mathematical models as these representational vehicles that kind of try to establish a connection to something that is out there, that is independent from the subject trying to do something with the model, and that it's really about mirroring re representation, these kinds of notions. And I think I gradually came to 
the point where I'm not so sure if this is a very useful way to think about science. And here again, it partly has to do also with autobiographical observations of myself studying physics. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you start with classical mechanics. What is it you're doing? In retrospect, I would say it has a lot to do with unlearning many empirical intuitions you just have when you didn't you weren't exposed to 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 high school or university level physics at all so you kind of have to get certain things out of your system you know like things that things fall faster when they're heavier and and stuff like that so you have to get rid of of, of some of your life world intuitions I, I would say but then there is something else which is important we touched on that early on you know, when you try to solve your first simple physics examples, you know, these toy examples of trucks sliding down somewhere and, and it's highly idealized situations. I mean, I would say that is basically a way to learn to really literally constitute reality in a new way with the help of a scientific theory and sometimes with the help of mathematics and you do do the same thing all over again if you then from classical mechanics go over to i don't know electromagnetism and then you go to special relativity and again what you try to do is to simply and then some people would say well the only thing you're doing here is to conceptualize empirical situation differently but i'm not sure if this is really getting all of what actually happens I would say in some cases it really reaches deeper, literally learning to constitute reality uh, in a completely different way. And you can even make the case historically, if you look, for instance, at Galileo and you read the original text of Galileo, uh, whenever he goes into the mathematical details, it almost looks like, uh, well, just geometry. You have certain axioms, you have certain theorems, then you have a certain proof, and then something follows from it. But when he actually talks about the very methodological question. And I mean, he talks to, to Aristotelian physicists who would think that applying mathematics to cannonballs here on Earth is just a category mistake. You cannot do that. It, it simply doesn't work. Those are two different uh, disciplines and registers of, 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 of doing science. When he tries to convince these people, he uh, really uses all kinds of other argumentative techniques. He talks about theology, he talks about metaphysics, he talks about, you know, that God is a mathematician and all of that. But basically, I think what he tries to convince his contemporaries is to literally learn to perceive reality and constitute reality in a completely new way. Like, to look through the lens of a mathematical model that stipulates how a projectile would fly in the ideal case which arguably never exists in, in empirical reality because he makes all kinds of uh, uh, idealizations and assumptions that only work in the model, but you're supposed to take what you see in the model and only in the model as a normative ideal to which every concrete case is just an approximation. And for us today, this is so natural. Of course, yeah, this is what you do in many areas of science. But I think going back to the 17th century, it is really... It takes some time to appreciate how much of a intellectual step and how much of a of a of a of a challenge this also must have been for his uh, contemporaries to really almost change the order of relevance between 
the ideal case that you can only have in a mathematical model and all the concrete cases then, that then all of a sudden are only approximations to the ideal case. Mm -hmm. And I think this is happening in the history of science over and over again. But once you learned how to look at an empirical situation through the lens of a particular scientific theory, it really also gets sedimented. It becomes very natural. Once you learn it, it's almost impossible to remind yourself how hard it was to look at reality in that way for the very first time. Yeah, I, I suppose there's kind of, so, so the, there's different attitudes we can take here. So whether or not one believes in an objective reality, well, one might say, okay, well, my, my models are either just, my models are simply approximations or idolizations of that objective reality. I think one of the interesting intuitions of phenomenology is is, is that actually, no, it, it's going somewhat further than that. And it's very hard, the sort of, the, the amount of baggage that we bring is, is so great that actually the reality is kind of constructed within the theory. And it, that there is for me a bit of a one of the the sayings I really like from within analytic tradition is you know all, all observation is is theory laden, and that that kind of represents perhaps you know the idea. Well, there's still there's still a fun, you can take that two ways again. You can still say well there is a fundamental objective reality, and it's just you know our theories we need our theories to interpret that. But the other is that, well, our theories are kind of co-created by us uh, or, co or create that reality with us. And it, yeah, it is really interesting to think of, of, of Galileo in this context as, yeah, completely, like you say, turning things on their head. Many... Uh, People kind of characterize science as just this kind of Baconian process of lots of observations and then some induction based on that. But that's not really at all since Galileo. That that, that just hasn't been happening, right? It's it's it, it's completely different. You you start with you know he talked about the tools of circles and 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 uh, triangles and how it's without geometry we are in a darkened labyrinth, not just lost in a labyrinth. The lights are turned off as well. So. <laughs> And so you start with those and then fit your observations into those circles and triangles and into that framework. So, I mean, I'm sort of on the fence here. I'm kind of inclined, certainly within, probably towards the position of saying, well, there is an objective reality. And it's just, we have to, to get some purchase on that. We've got to make idealizations to get away from the kind of messiness of the world is that uh, curious are you kind of a realist in that sense of, of there being an objective reality or would you describe your position as as otherwise or completely anti-realist okay i mean so let me chicken out of the question <laughs> by by saying that if I were a neutral observer, I would probably a neutral observer of the philosophical discussion about scientific realism, I, 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 I should qualify. I would 
probably find it very interesting that the discussion really has argued itself to a stalemate and that you can basically be a scientific realist, you can be a scientific anti-realist. And if you're if you're clever enough with pulling off the arguments and making your position, I, I and, and to be honest, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you have something like constructive empiricism. On the other hand, you have something like I don't know, very thin versions of epistemic structural realism. Sometimes I really have a hard time telling those two apart and, and really saying what is now really the difference between the two, except for your tastes about wanting or not wanting to use the notion of, 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 of realism. So maybe, and this is really just a suggestion, and I would love to in a position to offer this in terms of papers, books, whatever, fully argued and, 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 and spelled out in detail. But maybe we're asking the question in the wrong way. And maybe the fact that the discussion really came to this point where it seems to be almost artificial on which side of the fence you're standing mm-hmm. really should tell us something about that we might have framed the whole debate in, 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 in the wrong way. And I think this is where in uh, the podcast with uh, Rüdiger Schack, which I really found very interesting, uh, and we had this uh, conference last year here at my institution in, 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 in Sweden about uh, the connections between phenological approaches to physics and cubism, because I think there are lots of interesting relations to explore here. There is a book forthcoming with uh, Routledge later this year, which kind of summarizes this, the status quo of this discussion with papers by Chris Fuchs, uh, Rüdiger Schack, and, and phenomenologists like um, myself, Michel Pipal, Stephen French, and, and, and a few others. Okay, but great. But I think what... Yeah, please. Oh, no, it's good. Oh, and very, uh, maybe I'll very briefly, while I've just interrupted you, um, yeah. for anyone who's not caught this episode and... and uh, doesn't have the time to, uh, the, or the episode with Rudiger Schachen is, uh, obviously you can now pause, listen to that, but if you want a one minute summary, so cubism is uh, another way of interpreting, understanding quantum mechanics, I guess, a way of connecting quantum mechanics to reality and very roughly, and someone's going <laughs> to, apologies for getting this wrong as I will, um, it says something like quantum, quantum states are not elements of an objective reality. They tell us things about our epistemic states. And in any case, you can't, the kind of message from quantum mechanics is that there isn't an objective reality. Uh, You can't remove agents from the picture. And, you know, thinking about Schrodinger's cat, they they would argue that, you know, the fundamental message there is the choices that agents make in setting up experiments and and the ways that they choose to look at the world are actually co-creating the world. And so there is a kind of world outside the agents, but it's not the full picture because you need to include agents in in your description of reality. Yes. And you should totally make self-advertising about other parts of your podcast because they're really, really, they're a joy to to listen to. So uh, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. And in, in cubism, and I think this is really one of the kind of points of contact between cubism and phenomenology, uh, is there is this notion, it comes actually from Wheeler, this idea of a participatory uh, realism. So the idea basically 
Sometimes people think that cubism is just, uh, you know, um, instrumentalism. It's just about, you know, making predictions about outcomes of experiments and that's all there is. And I'm sometimes really surprised by how unable people are to actually read what the cubists say, because this is not what they're saying. They're saying, no, there is a message. But the message is, you, as you just said, you can't take the observer out of the equation. And I think this is really something which if you read, you know, the, uh, the first generation of physicists working on quantum mechanics, I think this was a much more popular, much more accepted viewpoint that we might consider in your podcast with uh, David Wallace, you, 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 the way how David kind of laid out the two options, you can either modify your physics or you can uh, modify your, your philosophy. And then he says, well, actually physicists, even in the early years of quantum mechanics, were much more open to the possibility of, of, of modifying your, your philosophy. To a certain extent, I think that is actually really what's happening with people in, uh, in cubism, but also in phenomenology. The idea that maybe we can make sense of the quantum formalisms and all the alleged riddles that come with it by basically just changing the way how we think what a mathematical model, what a mathematical formalism is. So again, not this representational vehicle that's supposed to show you how reality is completely independently from any theorizing or experimenting a subject, but maybe the quantum formalism is really about the correlation between the two. It includes the observer who tries to set up a certain experimental situation in order to um, get quantum experience out of the system. And on top of that, I do think that phenomenology, I think, has also this kind of transcendental flavor where you assume that there are certain structures at play which are really conditions of the possibility of there being experience. And no phenomenologist would claim that they're completely, you know, omnitemporal or unchanging or, or, or absolute and certain in that sense. There are changes, but there is a kind of a hierarchical order you have to respect if you make sense, if you want to make sense what's happening. And um, to a certain extent, I think, yeah, this idea of participation realism, this idea that you need to have this interaction between an observer in the process of trying to interrogate a certain empirical situation, but that this is really the precondition for there being quantum experience. This is, I think, something where cubism and phenomenology are, at least as far as the bigger picture is concerned, on a, a, a similar path. Yeah. And what, what's interesting here, of course, is, you know, as, as, as David said, you, you have this option to change your philosophy, but it's not a change of philosophy if, you, if you're coming from the phenomenological tradition. So it, it makes sense that, you know, it, it kind of undermines that argument somewhat if you've started thinking, oh, well, you know, what Galileo is doing, one needs to think in, in terms of his intentions of looking at things and then say, Oh, actually, quantum mechanics is kind of reinforcing this message because it makes it really hard to describe these situations without including agents in the picture. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, I, and, and if I may just add, I mean, to a certain extent, I just, I just had the pleasure to to teach a cor- course on 
Niels Bohr's philosophical writings. And I think it's mm. interesting to see what's happening there too, because uh, there is a certain uh, a group of people trying to make sense of Niels Bohr who also think that what's actually going on uh, in the way how Niels Bohr thinks about quantum mechanics is a certain transcendental structure too. So people mm. when thinking about Bohr sometimes have really a uh, hard time understanding why he would always reserve a classical language to describe the experimental setup and 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 the idea here basically is that setting up an experimental setup in order to interrogate a quantum phenomenon to really get uh, a quantum experience out of that is almost like you know if you talk about it in a transcendental framework it's the condition of the possibility of there being quantum experience. But that also means that you can't apply the uh, uh, the framework mm. of quantum theory yep. on what is the precondition for there being quantum experience. So you have to separate these two things. And of course, I mean, everything that has to do with these kinds of transcendental arguments where you think that there is a certain level of preconditions, which then cannot become part of what you can describe within the framework you're setting up in that way. That is, of course, something which goes very much against the mainstream of, 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 of naturalism and naturalist philosophy, everything that followed down from Quine, where you had this idea that, no, this is actually not happening. You, you don't have mm. these different uh, hierarchies. And I think this is one of the watersheds where people either have very strong intuitions uh, towards this kind of naturalist way of thinking, and on the other hand, I think uh, most people who, who work in phenomenology wouldn't share these uh, intuitions, that this is a very productive way uh, to make sense of what we're actually doing with science. Yeah. I think one, one thing that strikes me is, is that in some ways, some of the arguments about transcendentalism might have been translated into the kind of analytics school in terms of anthropic arguments. And that one could say... Oh well, I, I don't know that it really works in the quantum case, but in other cases, for example, one of the classic and incorrect <laughs> arguments of of Kant is that you know we we must live in a Euclidean space time or space because we just couldn't imagine it otherwise. So it's just you no, know, it's it's completely uh, fruitless to even attempt to uh, conceptualize ourselves within um, you know a curved space and. Of course, he was proved uh, pretty wrong on that, and and we've done quite a good job at, at managing to imagine ourselves in in such a you know such a space. But one could have redrafted. In some ways, that argument is being redrafted, but in anthropic terms, in terms of saying, well, you know, if if the parameters of our universe were different, and one can do this in lots of different ways. Like if if we if we lived in a space that was approximately you know, it was four-dimensional, uh, four spatial dimensions or something, then just like matter wouldn't coalesce in the same sort of way. like the, And we wouldn't really be able to form bodies and planets and all the stuff that we know and love and sort of need to create our minds that think about these problems. Do you, is there a useful, I mean, I think there is a useful distinction to be drawn here between transcendental arguments and anthropic ones, but yeah, how does one... How does one do that? Yeah, I mean, 
this is a, a super interesting question. I think it, it, it's also historically very uh, important because, I mean, also if you look at the uh, history of 20, the 20th century uh, philosophy, I think really, especially this idea that the revolution with uh, relativity theory meant really this death blow to any kind of transcendental argument that basically the historical figure of, of Kant should really be this, this warning sign because of all the uh, mm. uh, assumptions Kant made, made really in this historical unique situation and saying, oh, look, we have Newtonian physics with these and these and these assumptions. So now what we philosophers have to prove is what are the very conditions of the possibility of that being such a uh, solid piece of, of, of human knowledge. And then you bring the whole machinery of transcendental philosophy to work uh, in order to prove how that can be the pinnacle of, 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 of human knowledge. But then later it turns out, well, it isn't. And then you're in this almost embarrassing situation of having to admit that uh, your whole philosophical machinery, well, were put to use with the wrong kind of target. I think Ernst Cassirer is really interesting to read to you because some of the logical empiricists were very clear that these kinds of examples showed that any kind of transcendental approach to science simply does not work. And basically, I think you find the first grains, I mean, there are qualifications to be made, but a first grain of this idea that, well, science and philosophy are basically on the same level. There are no deep distinctions to be drawn between an alleged transcendental level and then the level on which uh, science works. I think that really is very strongly connected, especially to the name of, of Moritz Schlick. But mm -hmm. it's interesting, I think, as an antidote to uh, read someone like Ernst Cassira, who would be the first person to say that, yeah, of course, I mean, Kant is a historical thinker thinking in a very distinctive historical moment, took certain things for granted, and some of these things turned out to be wrong for empirical reasons. That's fine, but that doesn't mean that the general architecture of what a transcendental uh, argument actually is could not be applied to uh, different kinds of theory, and, and that if you have certain sympathies with a transcendental viewpoint, that you could not uh, except that uh, science is changing and that whatever you try to identify as a transcendental structure might turn out to be on a different level. That's why we call it transcendental, but still fallible and still maybe changing over time. Sure. And I think you asked before the question about reality and, uh, you know, whether there is a sense of reality uh, which uh, phenomenologists or also cubists uh, uh, want to preserve. And I would say, and in a way, it's, it's connected to this uh, question about uh, transcendental philosophy. Yes, of course there is. I would frame it a little bit differently. I think everyone who deals with science, everyone who ever stepped into a laboratory, everyone who ever talked to an experimental physicist, everyone who, I don't know, looks at the great examples, I don't know, 1919 uh, solar eclipse experiment or whatever you have you. One thing you have to account for is the kind of the resistance. Reality, whatever it turns out to be, gives us. It, something pushes back very strongly. And you have to account for that somehow. If telling a story about a completely mind-independent theory and Dependent fixed structure out there. If that is the only way to go, that's where I'm not entirely sure. 
I do uh, understand that in some cases it gives you a very neat argument for certain things we want to know. So you have a theory at point T1 and you have a theory later at point T2 and uh, the empirical adequacy of T theory at T2 is much higher than the previous one. Why is that? Of course, saying, well, because we approximated the structure of reality, which is just out there, is a very smooth explanation. It gives you a very mm -hmm. clear uh, image. But at the same time, there are, of course, problems connected with that. We know it from the scientific realism debate. We have all kinds of problems with underdetermination with the historical record. Mm -hmm. That basically this is how people thought at various different points in time. And then uh, uh, later theories turned out to refer to stuff which, according to what we think we know yeah. now, simply aren't out there and all these things. Completely so, different. You know, scientific resolutions in the you know, Keynes so, terminology. I mean, to a certain extent, I think what phenomenology is about at the moment is, I mean, first of all, it's a niche project. It's a couple of people exploring stuff you can find in some areas of uh, continental philosophy, whether they could be useful in uh, discussions uh, within uh, mainstream philosophy of science and philosophy of physics, and whether we could, for instance, think about what reality, what realism, these kinds of notions could mean in a register which is slightly different of assuming that whatever reality is, is only what you get if you put uh, the subject completely out of the equation. I think this is probably one of the main intuitions where phenomenologists would say, no, this is just, this is it, it, not even as an approximation. This simply does not work. But of course, if phenomenology is useful at all, it needs to tell a story how, for instance, you can go in a laboratory and then experience something kicking back at you very violently. What is that that's kicking back? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, th I think it's a, it's an interesting take on uh, Kant here that that maybe we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, as it were, and, and that he, he got that wrong that one argument wrong and we're like okay well we'll stop using that that method to sort of simplify the argument i mean that doesn't happen with science we don't say oh like i, I said there were no black swans i've just seen one Let, let's let's stop using induction right so it's it's quite curious that 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 has happened and i think you're right i mean i think in terms of the kind of notions of reality again like just the kind of analytic sketch of the continental view is something like oh well they just you know they don't believe in science at all right or they, they can't account for the empirical adequacy of science and if you ask them you know what's the uh social constructivist explanation of why a plane stays in the air right they just they, they can't give it but you know that that's a completely straw man characterization <laughs> and there's many more flavors um or, of thinking about reality and, and, and one as you say doesn't do away with um, an external reality, but it it, it doesn't it, it also doesn't admit that there that's all that there is, or is the complete picture. So yes, I, I I think it is important to sort of lay these out for anyone who is following these topics. That there's a lot more subtlety and uh, utility um, in the yeah phenomenological approach. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, in my experience, it also is that, I mean, even though I would very, very strongly think of myself as someone who really goes back and forth between these two, I mean, just in terms of my latest two conferences, for instance, last week I was on 
at a conference uh, on the relation between uh, phenomenology and qualitative methods and and, and, and and interviews and these kinds of things. But the week before, I was at the uh, conference of the Nordic Network of, uh, of Philosophy of Physics, which is purely just what you would think about uh, uh, mainstream philosophy of physics. So I really try to connect with both of these areas. But in my experience, when it comes to my um, phenomenological work, what I also realized is that sometimes when it comes to these maybe a little bit unconventional philosophical ideas, which you might find more in, 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 in continental corners, sometimes the physicists are actually more open-minded uh, than the philosophers. This was something I realized at this conference we had up here uh, in Sweden, where all of a sudden, like Rüdiger Schack also mentioned this in, 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 in the podcast he, he did with you, uh, at some point we were discussing uh, late Meloponti and his notion of the flash. And I mean, to be honest, uh, I mean, having my first philosophical schooling in analytic philosophy and then kind of migrating over into uh, a phenomenology, late Meloponti can be a challenge sometimes to put it <laughs> very much. I mean, sometimes you really think like, this is really beautiful. And the associations in my mind are, you know, uh, Parisian cafes and filterless chitan and and you know and, and 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 these kinds of things, but really, what are you saying, dude? But I think there is something there, and I think what 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 sometimes needed is really a certain a, a patience and a certain hermeneutic sense for trying trying sometimes also to fill out the gaps to a certain extent because I think mm. uh, I mean all of my students what I tell them is. You need to learn analytic philosophy because this is the area where, where you will learn to how to you know pull off a good argument to make clear what your premises are and all these kinds of things, and then you can move over and look uh, at perhaps uh, interesting stuff you can find in the more uh, continental realms. But coming back to the openness of uh, physicists at this conference, like for instance, seeing how the physicists there reacted to. Metaponti's notion of the flesh when we started to talk about that. So a couple of phenomenologists, Michel Bipol, who, who really knows Metaponti very, very well, and a couple of other philosophers. In the beginning, you could tell that, uh, oh, well, what's happening? Flesh? Well, what's that supposed to mean? But then they really picked up on that. And now reading uh, Rüdiger Schack's paper in the forthcoming uh, edited volume I'm, I'm publishing with my colleague Philipp Berghofer, uh, he writes a whole chapter on that and how really Meloponti's notion could be uh, an important piece for uh, kind of filling out the uh, gaps in uh, Cubist's uh, ontological or metaphysical background story, so to speak. That was quite encouraging. Or to give you a second example, this is a quote from a 2002 paper by Bruckner and Zeilinger, uh, the recent physics Nobel laureate, the laws we discover about nature do not already exist as laws of nature in the outside world. Rather, laws of nature are necessities of the mind for any possibility to make sense whatsoever out of the data of experience. This epistemological structure is a necessity behind the form of all laws an observer can discover. I mean, if mm. that would have been a phenomenologist writing that, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. So that sounds like a are. very transcendental argument, I have to say. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and so I think, would I bet everything I have 
um, phenomenology being the next uh, big thing in, 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 in philosophy of science, doing away with all the traditional problems we had? No, of course not. But I think it's an interesting avenue to explore. And I think that a bit more open-minded attitude and looking at, at, at um, you know, uh, intellectual resources we literally have lying around, but we're not really using them because the formulations might sometimes be a little bit different and the way the arguments are sometimes, uh, you know, constructed do not, are not adequate to the, the kind of notion of rigor we sometimes have. I mean, honestly, that's not something that, intellectually satisfies me. I think we can mm-hmm. really, I mean, in philosophy of science, people are willing to uh, 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 roll up their sleeves and learn math in order to understand what's happening in physics. Why not learning a little bit of, I don't know, Heidegger, Derrida? And there might be something there. And sometimes there is, I can say from personal experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, um, I like to think about Maybe if we return, in fact, to the kind of original topic of of, of, of thought experiments, because uh, we we never got to it, but I'm seeing a kind of resemblance between the kind of understanding that one gets from so reading the Forever War, which is this 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 work about um, well traveling close to the speed of light and the effects of that on um, one's experience of the world. I, I guess. Um, so I think your, your kind of take on that, that book is that it's not trying to give you a physical understanding of the world, but yeah. an ex- existential one. And it doesn't yes. give it to you on a plate either. It doesn't just say, oh, right, uh, if, we, if we traveled faster than or close to the speed of, uh, of light, gosh, think of all the, the ways that would affect your human relationships and, uh, you know, even such prosaic things is the calculation of your salary right it, it it forces you to you know it gives you a very long form of that and 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 maybe that's a way of uh as it were pumping your intuitions or, or maybe just you know building out those mental models uh, that you need to gain understanding and i i wonder if maybe i'm going too far here but I wonder if there is an aspect to the occasional obscurity that one finds oneself reading, for example, the late Merleau Ponty, where actually it, it's a it's a similar there's a similar maneuver in that it, it does it's unapologetically um, difficult and it forces you to completely uh, move into a different conceptual framework just to understand what's being said and and and, and perhaps that's you know deliberate right and 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 a way of effectively consolidating understanding yeah no yeah no uh, thanks also for for kind of kind of pelling back to, (laughs) to, to the initial topic because i think yes very much so and i think this is also i mean there are two things here so the first thing is one of the reasons also why I wrote this paper on the one hand on understanding and thought experiments and the connection to understanding in in science fiction literature also was a very actually political reason because when I wrote this paper or when I started to think about this, I was uh, living in San Francisco at the time and Trump was inaugurated uh, into the White House for the first time. And seeing 
the situation around me. You, so you you have these bubbles, like in San Francisco, lots of people are either working in big tech or at universities, and you have you know the high income uh, intellectuals uh, talking about this and that and going to the opera and whatnot. But then on the other hand, you see a majority of people who apparently really have lost any kind of connection to what, for instance, science is doing, and then really kind of pushing back to that narrative. That was something which was scary, really scary. I mean, I remember mm. getting a phone call from uh, San Francisco Public School Board telling me that, Mr. Wilcher, you're not an American citizen, but no worries. Your son will not be deported from campus tomorrow. And I thought, <laughs> what the hell is going on? I mean, I know you meant well, but what are you saying? Yeah. So th 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 this would be the one thing. But... I think this is really something where, for instance, continental philosophers, I think, have a lot to say on exactly this existential moment of there being a bigger and bigger and bigger gap mm. between what science is, the, the, the kind of reality science allegedly is talking about, and on the other hand, really literally the life world of people. Yeah, And this is also where, uh, for me, Husserl uh, really occupies such a unique position because with a lot of continental philosophers, I think they are very aware of this problem that science and, and life world and the existential dimension of everyday life and politics and all of that are more and more disconnected from each other. But I think what you find in a lot of continental philosophy is a very anti-modern, anti-enlightenment take on that, basically really reinforcing a lot of what people would say. They would, you know, go into these social constructivist ideas of, well, it's just another power game. Science is just, it's, it's uh, what happens in the laboratory is mostly an argument about who gets how much time in the laboratory or with the coffee machine or these kinds of things. And on the other hand, in analytic philosophy, where arguably also you have a much better understanding of what the science is actually in detail, and it's not only treated as a, as a big black box, you might have a very uh, pro-modern, pro-enlightenment mm. attitude, but that at the same time, sometimes I think is, is, is actually very blind to this basic problem that you can yeah. talk about what happens at the speed of light all day long, but for someone who's stuck in everyday traffic six, seven days a week and has five days of uh, paid vacation, they simply will not care. And they will think, well, now you're talking about climate change. Now you're talking about a pandemic, but I don't understand any of these things and I don't care. I will vote the guy on YouTube and on Twitter. Husserl, I think, has both of these things. This is really where I would urge more people to read especially uh, The Crisis of European Sciences, uh, so Husserl's last big book, because also I last major publication, because it's also so interesting historically, because at the time when he was writing, I mean, he was from Jewish descent. He already was not allowed to go to his own home university anymore, enter the campus or the library, and writes this book about how can something as great as science, because he was very pro-scientific, how can something as great as uh, modern science, create at the same time something like uh, Nazi Germany. How, how yeah. is that? How, how, do, how do these things go together? So you really have the combination, I think, of a deep appreciation of this glaring gap where someone like, I don't know, Sellers would say, oh, your everyday intuition of what uh, space and time is, that's just an illusion. Uh, just, you know, you have to accept that 
how things are really out there is something science tells you. And then you end up in the situation where you don't even know how these things are connected anymore. Husserl is quite different on that take. But at the same time, he doesn't fall into this trap of going all in and anti-modern and, 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 and relegating science to just another big story. And this is, I think, where a lot of the attraction uh, of Husserl comes from. So sorry for the uh, Husserl advertisement, but uh, I thought that. No, I, I think it, I, I think it's I think it is really interesting, and it's for me, you know, in the continental, uh, sorry, in the analytic tradition, the kind of touch point for all these debates is always uh, C.P. Snow's two cultures. Yeah, but it, you know, I, I, in many ways, Husserl, well, he 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 thought a lot more about this, I would say, than than, than C.P. Snow, and, and and thought about the deleterious consequences, um, sort of extrapolated them i i guess um further than 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 snow did you know if i very kind of sketch of snow's argument is oh isn't it a shame right that the arts are so appreciated among certain circles and the sciences are you know all that matters to others although by the way the scientists do a little bit better at understanding the arts than the other way around you know that's that's sad but you know who, who sells Talk of a crisis uh, stalking you know, Europe is 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 much you know that really throws into sharper relief the the problem here. Incidentally, I think it's interesting that C. P. Snow was a, a science fiction novelist, and um, oh, I didn't know that. I, okay, uh huh, interesting. Yeah, and I I I think he was. A, a historical note i think part of the motivation for his uh or part of the kind of sentiment that he felt was driven by the fact that his science fiction novels were like really popular made him lots of money but they they didn't win him any critical acclaim within literary circles <laughs> and he was like well god why can't people appreciate this more so yeah yeah a little bit of an aside there but but I mean, again, it brings us back to this th- theme that there is, there are these ways that we can we can tie science and philosophy, or um, the arts rather, or, or or better put, just science and you know the general cultural concerns together. Science fiction is, is a very obvious way of doing that, in, in the, but but it's in. It's it's perhaps a little niche, right? There's maybe not it, it's it's maybe not extending the the circle of people who are sort of informed about science uh, and and take it seriously enough. Uh, any thoughts on like what you know what what more we can be doing, or what are other forms of of, of spreading that and and making this this argument that we need to link science or how we link science to people's everyday lives? Um, well, that's the uh, big question. It's <laughs> five minutes dollar question. I, yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, one thing's for sure. It's biting us big time right now. I mean, if you, if you see some of the um, uh, discussions uh, during the pandemic uh, about you know, how people thought about, um, you know, the vaccine or all of these things mm-hmm. or now the discussions uh, 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 surrounding climate 
change denialism. I think what really sometimes frustrates me a lot is that if you try to argue with people who have this really fundamental distrust against science because there is this narrative about, you know, it's it's it's, it's a certain part of society uh, basically living in a bubble, which to a certain extent, I also have to say, might not always be completely untrue. But at the right. same time, I mean, it's really hard to, to even start or to even know where to start in countering these kinds of arguments. Because, I mean, if someone tells you, well, I don't believe in climate change because it's all just a model. What are you supposed to say? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, the best <laughs> bits of human knowledge are models. So how could this be an argument? But in order to even start in a plausible way to argue against any of this, I mean, could science fiction help there? I mean, I don't know. I mean, realistically speaking, I, what I can say is in a lot of discussions I had about not only science, but also politics and these kinds of things. I mean, I if I got, I don't know, 10 euros for every time I referred to Star Trek in talking about my political views, then I would be rich probably <laughs> because this is not only where a lot of my own inspiration, how I think about society and all of this comes from, but it's also a very nice way to get people engaged with hypothetical or counterfactual reasoning. And that's probably also exactly the connection with, with thought experiments, right? Because I think a huge part that makes sometimes these discussions so problematic is simply the lack of imagination for people to, to think about, you know, mm. other ways how we could uh, organize society. And with something like climate change mm. around the corner, we will have to be very inventive to come up with ways to completely reorganize our uh, society. But how can you do that if people have such a strong unwillingness to engage in these kinds of, I would say, model building uh, exercises? Well, science fiction yeah. could be one of them. You could say, look at Star Trek, no money, everyone's basically the same, and they're all happy. So what about that? I mean, I know this is now very, very simple and 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 and, and too simple way to put it. But yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things you point out very nicely in your the thought experiments um, paper is what makes a thought experiment effective is a mixture of strangeness and familiarity. And of course, what yes. what's strange and familiar is a contextual thing. Um, you know, the thought experiments about throwing black felt information into black holes may seem completely strange <laughs> to to many people, but to people who think about quantum physics or black holes, uh, you know, half you know. There's there is an element of familiarity there, and there's also some strangeness. If you're coming from the sort of general relativity approach, you're like, okay, I know what a black hole is, but oh my gosh, what's what's happening? What's this information stuff that's uh, you know that needs to be conserved according to quantum mechanics, and, and you know, vice versa. But but of course, like maybe we need to, you know, the trick is finding that familiar ground before you introduce the strange ideas and Star Trek works mm. for people who know S Star Trek, but perhaps, you know, that there is a, there has been this cultural divergence in interests, which has aligned with across so many things. And I think there needs to be more efforts to, to breach that, you know, the, I'm sure the, the, you know, the kind of te television or YouTube videos or whatever it is that, climate change deniers watch 
will be quite a different in a quite a different region of that space to what someone who has very different views uh, watches but there must be some things in common yeah, right? i think there are there are things are you familiar with uh, for instance uh Klaisai? uh it's no. climate science fiction okay oh Klaisai, sorry so the basic idea is you have relatively traditional science fiction settings but uh, really the focus is on what climate change is doing to to society and there are even subgenres like for instance solar punk so basically it's a little bit like you know steampunk idealizing a certain uh, uh a version of industrialized uh, mechanicized uh, society and solar punk would be a representation of a possible future where people use you mm. know solar power in all different kinds of ways in a very cool and very attractive way and i i think with 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 works of science fiction that go in that direction really trying to visualize and help you imagine a situation where first of all you can see what the dramatic outcome of what's currently happening really is but also how society could uh, change in ways which are not only scary, not only dark, not only yeah. uh, whatnot, not only Mad Max, but perhaps we can turn this into something cool, even though, of course, the whole thing is very scary. But again, I mean, when you're looking at science fiction, it's probably, in the first instance, probably making people engage with, first of all, what the problem is, and then second of all, uh, with the kind of imagination how we could deal with such a situation. Oh, that's wonderful. S solar punk. This is, uh, yeah... A new time Ooh, to be. Right? I, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's great. And I, I think you're right. I mean, there is a danger that we present too much pessimism. And I think that is leading to sort of inaction isn't quite the right word, but just people are almost overwhelmed, I think, by the scale of, of the climate crisis. So it is important to present the the possible brilliant futures that we, we we could be living and i think there is a lot of room for for optimism i'm another another mini advert here but there's a the the, the first podcast i did with is casey hanmer and he envisages a future where we cover something like maybe it's like a 15 to 20 percent of the world's deserts with solar power well actually it wouldn't just be deserts you put these solar power things all over and that would you know just from that, you'd create methane. So you don't need to sort of build out your national electricity grids. You just colo, you, you put these anywhere you need hydrocarbons, like I everywhere <laughs> that there are people. And there comes a certain point, which according to his predictions, and this is based on like the decrease in, in the cost of, of solar power as, as more and more gets installed, there comes a point where it's, it's cheaper to create your hydrocarbons from the air than from mining the ground and once you hit that point well no one's going to be bothered no one's going to be mining or, or taking hydrocarbons out of the crust and we're going to be building out this infrastructure as, as fast as we could possibly can Our energy bills are going to go down and we're not going to be sort of beholden to petro states and so forth so it's you know there's, there's just so many consequences to to think through so yeah rich rich ground for the um solar punk uh folks <laughs> i feel we're, we're, we're in a very optimistic place here which is always a good uh moment to, to sort of end but 
we've talked about a lot, but I'm just wondering if you have any, I don't know, final thoughts or things that people should look at or complete tangents that you want to <laughs> go on for a minute or two. Yeah, hmm. the floor is yours. Oh, this is a so tricky question because it's so wide. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, we covered a lot. Uh, and um, I mean, when it comes to the academic work, uh, maybe one of the things this edited volume on cubism and phenomenology is coming out mm. later this year with Routledge, and I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that. There is already, if people want to get a better view of what uh, this whole phenomenology uh, philosophy of physics connection is all about, there is already a edited volume uh, with uh, Springer in the Synthese Library. I think that might be also a good uh, a starting point. My uh, co-editor, Philip Berghofer and I, we wrote pretty lengthy introductions to both of these editions. I think they're both in the 50-page range, so they're mm -hmm. really long. But, I mean, they're meant to, because the usual situation is you have people in analytic philosophy who might only know the name of Husserl and whatever, and then you have people on the uh, phenomenology side who usually don't know that much about uh, uh, philosophy of science and physics. So basically, especially those two introductions are really meant to kind of make a first connection. So for mm. both sides, if you get curious coming from one side uh, and thinking about, I would like to know what's happening on the other, then I think those are good places to start. And then finally, something I'm also very excited about, Stephen French at the University of Leeds, who most people in, in, I would say, mainstream philosophy of science and physics uh, know for his work in, you know, uh, structural realism on the relation mm. between physics and mathematics, his work in the history of uh, quantum mechanics, has a forthcoming book. I think it's Cambridge University Press or Oxford University Press. I, I'm really sorry. I, I tend to mix up the two sometimes. That's fine. I mean, uh, we call them Oxbridge because they're so... Yeah, <laughs> Oxford, Oxford University Press. <laughs> He has a forthcoming book on a phenological interpretation of quantum mechanics. I'm very much looking forward to. Well, actually, I, I know the manuscript, so it's 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 excellent. And mm -hmm. we will have a workshop on that book in September here in Sweden. Uh, David Wallace, by the way, will also be here. And there is a forthcoming special issue also on that book. So I think there are a couple of things moving in that corner of philosophy of science and philosophy of physics. And I think also more people from analytic philosophy are getting more curious and also interested and uh, actively engaged with uh, 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 phenological literature. And yeah, well, that's uh, super exciting uh, for me. And yeah, that, that's really... Other people too. No, I think that that's very encouraging to hear. It's yet more, more optimism. So uh, yeah. Harold, th thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. I've 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 really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this, please tell your friends, leave reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, wherever you listen. And ooh, that's a nice bit of bass. Cheers. Till next time.